Section 8 of A Study of British Genius by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 8 Pathology Relative Ill Health, Consumption, Psychology of Consumptives, Gout, Its Extreme Frequency of Men of Ability, The Possible Reasons for the Association Between Gout and Ability. Other uric acid diseases, asthma and angina pectoralis, insanity, the question of its significance, apparent rarity of grave nervous disease, frequency of minor nervous disorders, stammering, its significance, high-pitched voice, spasmodic movements, illegible handwriting, short sight, awkwardness of movement. It has already been noted, page 134, that at least 10% of our eminent British persons suffered from a marked degree of ill health, amounting to more than minor discomfort during the years of their active lives. It is of some interest to observe how these persons are distributed among the various chief classes of ability. This distribution appears to be as follows. Soldiers and sailors, 3%. Statesmen, etc., 7%. Men of science, 11%. Lawyers, 13%. Men of letters, 15%. Artists, 16%. Poets, 16%. Divines, 17%. This marked prevalence of ill health among divines has already been noted by Galton, Hereditary Genius, page 255, et sec. He analyzed 196 biographies contained in Middleton's Biographica Evangelica and came to the conclusion that there is a frequent correlation between an unusually devout disposition and a weak constitution. He found that over 13%, at least, were certainly invalids, while a large number of the others were ailing. He found that of the twelve or thirteen who were alone stated to be decidedly robust, five or six were irregular in their youth, while on the other hand, only three or four divines are stated to have been irregular in their youth, who were not also men of notably robust constitutions. In a large proportion of cases, no reference is made by the national biographers to the diseases from which their subjects suffered, nor to the general state of health. This, however, we could scarcely expect to find except in those cases in which the state of health had an obvious influence on the life and work of the eminent person. In most of these exceptional cases, it is probable that the biographers have duly called attention to the facts, and though the information thus attained is not always precise, in part owing to the imperfection of the knowledge transmitted, in part to the medical ignorance of the biographers, and in part to a deliberate vagueness of their reference to a painful malady, etc., it enables us to reach some very instructive conclusions concerning the pathological conditions to which men of genius are most liable. Putting aside the cases of delicate health in childhood, with which I have already dealt in a previous section, the national biographers state the cause of death or mention serious disease conditions during life in some 400 cases. It is natural to find that certain disease conditions, which are very common among the ordinary population, are also very common among men of preeminent intellectual ability. Thus a lesion of the vessels in the brain, a condition commonly described as paralysis, apoplexy, effusion of the brain, etc., is a very common cause of death among the general population. We also find that it is mentioned 44 times by the national biographers. Consumption, also so prevalent among the general population, occurred in, in at least 40 cases. While many of the consumptive men of genius lived to pass middle age, or even reached a fairly advanced age, the disease is responsible for the early death of most of the more eminent of those men of genius who died young, of Keats in poetry, of Bonington and Girton and Beardsley in art, of Purcell probably in music, 
Some appear to have struggled with consumptive tendencies during a fairly long life. These have usually been men of letters, and have sometimes shown a feverishly literary activity, their intellectual output being perhaps as remarkable for quantity as for quality, as we may observe in Maxter and in J. A. Simmons. But Stern in literature, and Black, Priestley, Clifford, and other eminent men of science are to be found among the consumptives. It is evident that the disease by no means stands in the way of any but the very highest intellectual attainments, and it is not indeed actually favourable to mental activity. There is, however, a pathological condition which occurs so often in such extreme forms, and in men of such preeminent intellectual ability, that it is impossible not to regard it as having a real association with such ability. I refer to gout. This is by no means a common disease, at all events to the present day. In ordinary English medical practice at the present time, it may safely be said that cases of typical gout seldom form more than 1% of the chronic disorders met with. Yet gout is, of all diseases, the most commonly mentioned by the national biographers. It is noted as occurring in 53 cases, often in very severe forms. We have indeed to bear in mind that gout has been recognised for a long time, and that it is moreover a disease of good reputation. Yet even if we assume that it has been noted in every case in which it occurs among our 1,030 eminent persons, an altogether absurd assumption to make, we should still have to recognise its presence in 5% cases. Moreover, the eminence of these gouty subjects is as notable as their number. They include Milton, Harvey, Sydenham, Newton, Gibbon, Fielding, Hunter, Johnson, Congreve, The Pitts, J. Wesley, Landor, W. R. Hamilton, and C. Darwin. While the Bacons were a gouty family, it would probably be impossible to match the group of gouty men of genius, for varied and preeminent intellectual ability by any combination of non-gouty individuals on our list. It may be added that these gouty men of genius have frequently been a centre, often very irascible. Choleric is a term applied by their contemporaries, and occasionally insane. As a group, they are certainly very unlike the group of eminent consumptives. These latter, with the febrile activities, their restless versatility, their quick sensitiveness to impressions, often appear the very type of genius. But it is a somewhat feminine order of genius. The genius of the Gaudi group is emphatically masculine, profoundly original. These men show a massive and patent energy which proceeds without rest. It may be, but also without haste, until it has dominated its task and solved its problem. Sydenham, the greatest of English physicians, who suffered from gout for 34 years and wrote an unsurpassed description of its symptoms, said in his treatise De Podagara that it may be some consolation that those sufferers from the disease who, like myself and others, are only modestly endowed with fortune and intellectual gifts, to know that great kings, princes, generals, admirals, philosophers, and many more of like eminence have suffered from the same complaint and ultimately died of it. In a word, gout, unlike any other disease, kills more rich men than poor, more wise and simple. And another ancient writer, the Jesuit Father Bald, who in 1651, wrote a work which he called Solatidum Podacricorium, called Gout Dominus Morbarum et Morbus Dominorum. I may remark that a much earlier ancient Eretus indicates that superior intelligence of the Gouti in his statement that they are specially skilled in the knowledge of the drugs that suit them. In more recent times, a long series of physicians have testified to the intellectual eminence of their Gouti patients, Cullen said that gout especially affected men of large heads. Watson stated that gout is peculiarly incidental to men of cultivated mind and intellectual distinction, 
Sir Spencer Wells believes that, in the absence of hereditary predispositions, gout is not easy to produce except in men endowed with a highly organized condition of the nervous system. And again remarks, Practical Observations on Gout, 1856, page 23, a reference to statesmen, those who are known to be subject to gout are among the most distinguished for an ancestry rendered illustrious by high thoughts and noble deeds for their own keen intelligence for the assistance that they have afforded to improvements in arts science and agriculture and for the manner in which they have led the spirit of the age i never met with a real case of gout in other classes of the community in a person not remarkable for mental activity unless the tendency to gout was clearly inherited this association ability with gout cannot be a fortuitous coincidence I have elsewhere suggested, Popular Science Monthly, July 1901, that the secret of the association may possibly, to some extent, lie in the special pathological peculiarities of gout. It is liable to occur in robust, well-nourished individuals. It acts in such a way that the poison is sometimes in the blood and sometimes in the joints. Thus, not only is the poison itself probably an irritant and stimulant to the nervous system, but even its fluctuations may be mentally beneficial. When it is in the victim's blood, his brain becomes abnormally overclouded, yet not intoxicated. When it is in his joints, his mind becomes abnormally clear and vigorous. There is thus a well-marked mental periodicity. The man liable to attacks of gout is able to view the world from two entirely different points of view. He has, as it were, two brains at his disposal. In the transition from one state to another, he is constantly receiving new inspirations, and constantly forced to gloomy and severe self-criticism. His mind thus attains a greater mental vigour and acuteness than the more equitable mind of the non-gouty subject. Though the latter is doubtless much more useful for the ordinary purpose of life, for the gouty subject is too much the victim of his own constitutional state to be always a reliable guide in the conduct of affairs. It is, however, possible only to speak tentatively of the nature of the pathological relationship between genius and gout, because the true nature of gout itself is not yet definitely known. Some years ago, the theory that gout is caused by uric acid was very vigorously promulgated by Gadod and others, and very widely accepted. This theory, however, no longer receives such wide acceptance, and there is a tendency to regard the uric acid produced in gout as a symptom rather than a cause. According to another view, which has already been maintained by Woods Hutchinson in a very able discussion of this question, the meaning of uric acid and the urates, Lancet, 31st of January, 1903, gout is certainly a taxoema but chiefly of intestinal origin, the uric acid produced by the disease being comparatively harmless. Whence it is that the drugs good in gout are such as either prevent intestinal fermentation or absorb its products. This theory does not, however, clearly answer the question why it is that some persons and not others are liable to gout. A theory which has been upheld by a long series of distinguished clinical physicians regards gout as primarily and preeminently a neurosis. This was a belief of Sal, Cullen, Laycock, Dice, Duckworth. Dice, Duckworth, a plea for the neurotic theory of gout. Brain, April, 1880. I should not be going beyond my proper province if I were to state that the facts were brought forward may be regarded as an argument in favour of the existence of a neurotic element in the factors producing gout. That, however, my data confirm the belief in the prevalence of gout among men of high intellectual ability can scarcely be doubted. I have sometimes found that physicians who readily accept a special association between intellectual ability and gout are inclined to accept for it easily by an unduly sedentary life probably associated with excesses in eating and drinking. This explanation cannot be accepted. 
Many of the most gouty persons on my list have been temperate in eating and drinking to an extreme degree, and while it is true that the gouty have often written much, the general energy, physical and mental, of the gouty may almost be said to be notorious. Sir Spencer Wells, in questioning the influence of sedentary habits, referred to the remarkable activity of gouty statesmen. More recently, Dr. Burney, you, remarks, British Medical Journal, 15th of June, 1901, the gouty patients that I have seen, I should say, in the majority of instances, been extremely active and energetic people, and it is often difficult to get them to take sufficient rest. I may note that in much earlier age, Aratia speaks of a gouty person who, in an interval of the disease, won the race in the Olympic Games. It may be of interest to point out, in relation to the connection between genius and gouty conditions, that Marrow, La Puberte, page 256, has observed a very constant relation between advanced age to parents at conception and lithiasis in the child. We have already seen that there is a marked tendency among some of our men of genius for the parents to be of advanced age at the eminent child's conception, and it is possible that the connection between gout and genius may thus be in part due to a tendency of some of the gouty producing influences to be identical with some of the genius producing influences. If this is so, we might probably expect to find that the age of the parents of those of our men of genius who belong pathologically to the lithiasis group would be higher than the general average. I find that the average age of 19 fathers of men of gouty men is 37.4, and of 7 mothers 33.2 years, while the average age of fathers of 8 eminent men who suffer from stone or gravel is 37.2. These averages are slightly, but very slightly indeed, higher than those for our men of genius generally. It must, of course, be remembered that the general averages are higher than those for the normal population. It must not, in any case, be supposed that in suggesting a real connection between gout and genius, it is thereby assumed that the latter is in any sense a product of the former. It is easy enough to find severe gout in individuals who are neither rich nor wise, but merely hard-working manual labourers of the most ordinary intelligence. It may well be, however, that given a highly endowed and robust organism, the gouty poison acts as a real stimulus to intellectual energy, and a real aid to intellectual achievement. Gout is thus merely one of perhaps many existing causes acting on a fundamental predisposition. If the man of genius is all the better for a slight ferment of disease, we must not forget that if he is to accomplish much hard work, he also requires a robust constitution. It may be added that the other diseases usually ascribed as of the uric acid group are common among our men of genius. Rheumatism, indeed, is not mentioned a large number of times, 11, considering its prevalence among the ordinary population. But stone and closely allied conditions are mentioned 25 times, sometimes in association with gout. And as we may be quite sure that this is a very decided underestimate, it is certain that the condition has been remarkably common. There are two disorders allied to gout, and at the same time distinctly neurotic in character, which are decidedly common among our eminent persons and we must, I believe, regard them as of considerable significance. I refer to spasmodic asthma and angia pectoris. Asthma is distinctly connected with gouty conditions, and occasionally also it alternates with insanity. It is a disorder common in individuals of high nervous temperament. I have noted it in 14 cases, often as beginning in early life, and Gina occurred in about 9 cases, certainly a large proportion considering the disease is one which has only been recognised in quite recent times. It is probable that one or two cases were not true angina, but that simulated angina, which sometimes occurs in neurotic individuals. On the other hand, several of the cases mentioned as our disease would certainly, had they been 
more definitely described, be set down as angina. One other grave pathological state remains to be noticed in this connection, insanity. To the relationship of insanity with genius, great importance has by some writers been attached. That such a relationship is apt to occur cannot be doubted, but it is far from being either so frequent or so significant as is assumed by some writers to rate together cases of insane men of genius without considering what proportion they bear to sane men of genius, nor what relation their insanity bears to their genius. The interest felt in this question is so general that we may be fairly certain that the national biographers have rarely failed to record the facts bearing on it. Although in some cases these facts are dubious and obscure, they may often have passed over guilt without mention, but they have seldom failed to mention insanity whenever they knew of its occurrence. It is therefore possible to ascertain the prevalence of insanity among the persons on our list with a fair degree of approximation to the truth, as it was known to the eminent man's contemporaries. We thus find that thirteen were, during a considerable portion of their active or early lives, thoroughly and unquestionably insane, in most cases with a clearly morbid hereditary which frequently showed itself in early life. In most cases also they died insane. These were J. Barry, Clare, William Collins, Cowper, Denham, Ferguson, Gilray, Lee, Patterson, Pugwin, Ritson, Romney, Smart. We further find a second group consisting of individuals who may be said with a fair degree of certainty to have been once insane, but whose insanity was either slight of brief duration or quickly terminated by death, sometimes by suicide. These were Borrow, Chatham, Cotman, O. Cromwell, G. Fox, J. Harrington, Hayden, Mrs. Jordan Kane, Lamb, Lancier, Lever, Rodney, D. G. Rossetti, Ruskin, Tillotson, Sir H. Trollope, Whitebread, Sir C. H. Williams. A third group consists of men who were perfectly sane during the greater part of long lives filled with strenuous intellectual activity, although in two or three cases there was morbid mental hereditary or eccentricity in earlier life. These cases, twelve in number, which may usually be fairly regarded as senile dementia, are H. Cavendish, Coleman, Marsh, Newton, J. Pearson, Sabine, Southey, Stephen, Swift, Warburton, S. Ward, T. Wright. It would be possible to add a fourth group of Portland cases in which the existence of actual insanity was in most cases dubious, but marked eccentricity not amounting to insanity was unquestionable. Such were Boswell, and R. Brown, and Lawrence Olipant. William Blake clearly lived on the waterland of insanity, and Dr. Maudsley indeed declared many years ago that if the story of his sitting naked with his wife in his summer house is to be believed, he was certainly insane. This, however, one may be permitted to doubt. Blake had strong opinions regarding the action of the sun on the skin, and in a day in which the sun bathes are regarded as beneficial, we may view more intelligently the action of a man who was in many respects a pioneer. I leave this group out of account, nor are the cases of suicide, at least ten in number, necessarily to be regarded as cases of insanity. If we count every case of probable insanity, which may be inferred from the data supplied by the national biographers, and if we include that decay of the mental faculties which in predisposed subjects is liable to occur before death in extreme old age, we find that the ascertainable number of cases of insanity is 44, so that the incidence of insanity among our 1,030 eminent persons is 4.2%. It is perhaps a high proportion. I do not know the number of cases among persons of the educated classes living to a high average age in which it can be said 
that insanity has occurred at least once during life. It may be lower, but at the same time it can scarcely be so very much lower that we are entitled to say that there is a special and peculiar connection between genius and insanity. The association of genius with insanity is not a belief without significance, but in face of the fact that its occurrence is only demonstrable in less than 5% cases, we must put out of court any theory as to genius being a form of insanity. It may be said that although the proportion of insane men of genius is so small, a different result would be attained if we took account of those who sprang from insane stocks or showed their neuropathic unsoundness by reducing insane stocks. It is no exaggeration to say, Dr. Maudsley once boldly wrote, that there is hardly ever a man of genius who is not insanity or nervous disorder of some form in his family. It is nearly twenty years since that statement was made, yet neither Dr. Maudsley nor anyone else had yet brought forward any sound evidence in support of it. So far as the present inquiry bears on the point, it may be said that the number of those men of genius who are noted as having a father or mother who became insane, or children who became insane, is very small indeed. The cases of insanity in the descendants being about equal to those of insanity in the ascendants, less than 2%, of our eminent persons are stated to have had either insane parents or insane children. We may certainly believe that the records are incomplete, but there is clearly no ground for believing that an insane hereditary is eminently productive of intellectual ability. Notions sometimes put forward that in discouraging the marriages of persons belonging to mentally unsound stocks, we eliminate the production of genius is without support. While I cannot compare with any precision the liability of persons of genius to insanity with a similar liability of corresponding normal classes, there is one comparison which it is interesting to make. We may compare the liability of persons of genius to insanity with the similar liability of their wives or husbands. It is noted by the national biographers that in 16 cases the wives or husband, there is only one in case the latter, became insane. We may be fairly certain that this is a decided underestimate, for while the biographers would hold themselves bound to report the insanity of their subjects, they would not consider themselves equally bound to give similar information concerning the wives, while in other cases it may be well that for the record of the fact has been lost. If now, in order to make the comparison reasonably fair, we omit the second group of slight cases of insanity, and only omit the first and third groups, we find that the proportion of cases of insanity among the persons of genius is 2.4%. Among the conjugal partners, on the other hand, I have not made any allowance for second marriages, it is 2.2. Thus we see that on a roughly fair estimate, the difference between the incidence of insanity on British persons of genius and on their wives or husbands is a negligible difference. It is scarcely hazardous to assert that British men of genius have probably not been more liable to insanity than their wives. At the first glance it might seem that this may be taken to indicate that the liability of genius to insanity is exactly the normal liability. That, however, would be a very rash conclusion. If the wives of men of genius were chosen at random from the general population, it would hold good. But there is a well-recognized tendency to observe among all the mentally abnormal classes for abnormal persons to be sexually attracted to each other. That this tendency prevails largely among persons of eminent intellectual ability, many of us may have had occasion to observe. What we see, therefore, is not so much the conjugation of an abnormal and a normal class of persons, but the presence of two abnormal classes. With regard to the significance of insanity, it must be pointed out that even if there is a slightly unusual liability to insanity among men of genius, there is no general tendency for genius and insanity even when occurring in the same individual, to be concomitant. Just as it is rare to find anything truly resembling genius in an asylum, 
so it is rare to find any true insanity in a man of genius when engaged on his best work the stimulation of it may occur either the divine mania of the artistic creator or a very high degree of eccentricity but not true and definite insanity there seem to be very few certain cases mostly poets in which the best work was done during the actual period of insanity christopher smart's one masterpiece may be said to be actually inspired by insanity and much of cowper's best work was written under the influence of insanity periods of insanity may alternate with periods of high intellectual achievement just as gout may alternate with various neurotic conditions but the two states are not concomitant and genius cannot be accurately defined as a disease it must also be pointed out in estimating the significance of the relationship between genius and insanity that the insane group is on the whole not one of commanding intellectual preeminence it cannot compare in this respect with the guilty group which is not much larger and the individuals of greatest eminence are usually the slightest or the most doubtful cases among poets and men of letters of an order below the highest insanity has been somewhat apt to occur marked eccentricity almost or quite amounting to insanity has been prevalent among antiquarians but the intellectual eminence of antiquarians is often so devious that the question of their inclusion in my list has been a frequent source of embarrassment if we turn from insanity to other grave nervous diseases we are struck by their rarity it is true that many serious nervous diseases have only been accurately distinguished during the past century and we could not expect to find much trace of them in the dictionary but that cannot be said of epilepsy which has always been recognized and in a well-developed form cannot easily be ignored yet epilepsy is only mentioned twice by the national biographers once as occurring in early life lord herbert of cherbury at an old age sir w r hamilton even these two cases however cannot be admitted in lord herbert of cherbury's case the national biographer has simply misunderstood a passage in lord herbert's autobiography in which he tells us how as he believed he escaped the epilepsy which he says is common in his family by acquiring a minor disorder in childhood a defection of the years which purged his system in sir w r hamilton's case the epileptoid fits occurred in old age most certainly cannot be regarded as true epilepsy there appears to be nothing whatever in the records of british genius favorable to, to lombroso's favorite theory that genius tends to occur on an epileptoid basis while however grave nervous diseases of definite type seem to be rare rather than common among the eminent persons with whom we are dealing there is ample evidence to show that nervous symptoms of vaguer and more atypical character are extremely common the prevalence of eccentricity i have already mentioned that irritable condition of the nervous system which in its protein forms is now commonly called neurasthenia is evidently very widespread among them and probably a large majority have been subject to it various definite forms of minor nervous derangement are also common among the minor forms of nervous derangement stammering is of very great significance i have ascertained that at least thirteen of the eminent persons on my list twelve men and one woman stammered these were bagot r boyle curran crocker erasmus darwin dodson mrs inchbold c kingsley lamb megan priestley shiel sidgwick seven others are noted as having defects of speech which are sometimes stated as to amount to a stamina but in other cases were doubtless ordinary stammering when it is remembered that the normal occurrence of stammering among adults is much below one percent and also that my record is certainly very incomplete it will be seen that there can be no doubt whatever as to the abnormal prevalence of stammering among british persons of ability it may be added that twenty-five persons are described as having a high shrill feminine small or weak voice this also is certainly very decidedly less than the real number 
Stammering may be defined as a functional disturbance of the central nervous system, congenital or acquired, characterized by involuntary disorderly spasms in certain muscles concerned in vocal utterance. In other words, it is a specific neurosis of muscular coordination. Hartwell, following Marshall Hall, describes it as a vitus dance of the finer, more peripheral muscles of speech. Stammering is frequently distinguished from stuttering, but it is unnecessary to reserve any distinction here, as our knowledge of the precise nature of the voice defects found among our men of genius is often imperfect. We may with wily regard stammering as a general term. Clausen's neurosis or development regards stammering as specially associated with rapid brain growth and most likely to occur between birth and the seventh year. In his careful investigation among Boston school children, Hartwell found that stammering became more prevalent at the beginning of accelerated growth, just before or just after such growth culminates, and again after its cessation. And he concludes that the irritability of the nervous system of which stammering is an expression is correlated with the most marked upward and downward fluctuations of the power of the organism to resist lethal influences. Stammering is much less common in adults than in children, and is three or four times more frequent in men. Among male adults, its frequency has been most carefully investigated in recruits, and its prevalence found to be, according to the standard adopted, three to six per thousand in France. Chevron, as well as among French recruits in the American War of Secession. Baxter, 1.2 per thousand among Native American recruits during the same war. Baxter, and exactly the same in Russia. Sikorsky. In persons of neuropathetic inheritance, stammering is especially liable to occur. Even in the very intelligent, Wiley remarks, Disorders of Speech, page 22, it may be found associated with nervousness and excitability, as well as sometimes with more distinct indications of irritability of the nervous system. Among the nervously abnormal classes, stammering and allied speech defects occur with especial frequency. This is notably the case among mental defectives. Thus, in Berlin, Castle found that 33.5% of defective children showed infirmities of speech, and Dr. Eccles, a London school inspector, states, The treatment of feeble-minded children, British Medical Journal, 6th September, 1902, that quite 75% of defective children speak imperfectly, ranging from complete aphasia to a mere indistinct thickening, including stammering, halting, lisping, word-clipping, mispronunciation, and the mainly purely vocal imperfections. Most of the minor speech defects mentioned would seem to have been specially prevalent among our British men of genius. The tendency to very high-pitched voice, which is so remarkably common in men of intellectual ability, may possibly be due to a slight paralysis for the vocal cords, such as is apt to occur in more marked degrees in general paralysis. Observed by Number 1, British Medical Journal, 24th November, 1894. Unless is caused by a general arrest of the laryngeal development. Involuntary spasmodic twitching movements, or a tick, of the smaller muscles, especially of the face, would appear to occur with very unusual frequency among our British men of genius. Although I have no figures of the prevalence of such convulsive movements among the ordinary population, I have noted the prevalence of this nervous disorder in seven cases. Browham, W. Hook, Dr. Johnson, C., Kingsley, Marshall, J.S. Mill, and Paley. Another form of tendency to nervous incoordination is shown, by no means necessary, by any actual tremors in the tendency to bad handwriting. Illegible handwriting is mentioned in nine cases which certainly need to be largely increased. A tendency to squalling or illegible handwriting has been frequently noted among the men of genius of many countries, and is by no means due to too much writing, for it is often traceable in early age. 
It must be remembered that the handwriting is a very delicate indication of the nervous balance, and as such has been carefully studied during recent years by Kreblin and his pupils. While alienists have long been accustomed to attribute significance to the remarkable changes in handwriting which often occur under the influence of insanity. As Goodhart has truly remarked, Lancet, 6 July, 1889, eligibility is a disease, and he compares it to the defects of speech. Writer's cramp, to which illegible handwriting is occasionally due, is also, it must be remarked, not the mere result of excessive writing. As Fieri points out, professional neurosis, 20th century practice of medicine, volume 10, page 707, it occurs more frequently in high officials than in the subordinates who write more, is associated with mental overwork and neurasthenic and neuropathic conditions. Short sight, another condition frequently occurring on the basis of hereditary nervous defect, is those existing in extreme degree, 16 times, and in 12 cases, some other sense was defective or absent. A condition to which I am inclined to attribute considerable significance from the present point of view is clumsiness or the use of the hands and awkwardness in walking. A singular degree of clumsiness or awkwardness is noted many times by the national biographers. Although they have certainly regarded it merely as a curious trait, they can scarcely have realized its profound significance as an index to the unbalanced makeup of the nervous system. This peculiarity is very frequently noted as occurring in persons who are tall, healthy, robust, full of energy. As boys, they are sometimes not attracted to games, and cannot, if they try, succeed in acquiring skill in games. As they grow up, all sorts of physical exercise present unusual difficulties to them. They cannot, for instance, learn to ride, even if fond of shooting. They may be unable to hit anything. In walking, they totter and shovel unsteadily. They are always meeting with accidents. Priestley, their great in experiment, was too awkward to handle a tool. Macaulay could not wield a razor or even tie his own neckcloth. Shelley, though lithe and active, was always tumbling upstairs or tripping on smooth lawns. It would be easy to fill many pages with similar examples. It is noted of at least 55 eminent men and women on a list that they displayed one or more such inaptitudes to acquire properly the muscular coordinations needed for various simple actions of life. In numerous cases, this clumsiness was combined with voice defect. The reality of the connection between clumsiness and muscular coordination and mental anomaly is clearly shown by the fact that in idiocy, the most extreme form of mental anomaly, this clumsiness is seen at its maximum. In general, remarks, Dr. W. W. Ireland, The Mental Affections of Children, 1898, page 319. Idiots or imbecile children are awkward in their motions and slow to learn to walk. No doubt the cause of this lateness in learning to walk is in some cases owing to weakness and others to nervous diseases. But there are still cases where the child always appeared strong and healthy. Their gait too is awkward. Idiots in general have a bad balance. The same awkwardness applies to the hand. The awkwardness in the case of idiots is doubtless largely due to absence of mental power. In genius, the same result is brought about not by absence of mental power, but by the streaming, not only functionality, it is probable, but organically, of the mental energy into other channels. A cause which we may even consider opposite leads to a like defect in the muscular machinery. End of chapter 8